My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 1. Russia doesn't have gay heroes. Russia doesn't have gay heroes, but for 30 years I've promised myself, somehow, someday, before I die, the world would know the hero of the Russian Revolution that brought down the Soviet Union was a brave, incredibly handsome, out gay man named Kostya. There are probably still some alive in Moscow who know Kostya's story better than I do, but they have no voice in the West. For 30 years, I've known it would fall to me to tell Kostya's story. And as long as our LGBTQ sisters and brothers in Russia or anywhere continue to be arrested, tortured, or murdered, it is my duty to bring Kostya's story into the light. I first met Kostya in a banya, a traditional Russian bathhouse not far from Red Square. I felt someone's eyes on me and looked up. That's when I first saw him boldly staring right at me with this huge grin. He just broke out laughing when he saw my nervous reaction. Oh my god, he intimidated the hell out of me. I was just a skinny, insecure kid from Utah who would never have the nerve to hit on a man as breathtaking as Kostya. But there he was, his eyes locked on mine as he waved off his posse of friends making his way through the maze of stone massage tables that separated us. Привет, I'm Kostya. I, I, I'm, I'm Stjopka, I'm Stepan Gordonovich. Well, actually, my, my real name is Stuart, and I don't have a patronymic, and it's kind of hard for Russians to say, so usually I just go with uh, uh, Stjopka. He just laughed and said, Privet, Stuart. Then, come, let's go to the sauna. Have you ever had a real Russian sauna, complete with getting beaten with a birch tree? We both broke out laughing as my anxiety slowly began to melt away. Kostya was my height, about 5'9". He had gentle brown eyes with this spark of unwavering and somewhat unnerving confidence. I've always envied men who could be that confident. He carried himself with such surety that even his slight lisp was somehow masculine. Wearing nothing but a wet towel, his masculine perfection was on full display. Kostya was a hundred and ninety pounds of solid, hairy-chested, blonde brawn. Everyone was watching him. Everyone wished they could be him. But most of all, absolutely every man in that banya wanted to be with him. I still couldn't believe he was hitting on me. I was absolutely terrified. But Kostya knew what he wanted. And it never crossed his mind for a single second he wouldn't get what he wanted. He just needed me to relax as he poured on the charm to make that happen. In those days, it took balls to be bold about your sexuality in Russia. Sadly, it still does. But Kostya was out and loud and fucking proud. Like most of my American friends, Kostya thought I took life a little too seriously. Using laughter as his lectern, he made it his quest to make me laugh, especially at myself. Nothing gave him more pleasure than making me laugh, and nothing gave me more pleasure than the way his face would just light up every time I did. There's something very appealing about a strong, charismatic man 
who is kind and gentle by choice. I adored Kostya and will never stop dreaming of the unfulfilled future that was stolen from us. There was only one way to survive in the Soviet Union, though. You had to lead a gray, obscure life. And above all, you must always, always go unnoticed. In America, we understood in-your-face pride was the key to our survival. But such behavior in Russia could cost you your life. And from the very first moment we met, I feared for Kostya. When you're as jaw-droppingly gorgeous as Kostya, you can't go unnoticed, anywhere, ever. He just seemed to instinctively understand this, and he knew there was nothing he could do to change it. So he just ran with it, and people noticed him, openly staring at him wherever we went. I was fortunate and could usually pass as a local just as easily in Russia or Germany as I did in America. A simple choice of the appropriate wardrobe was all it took for me to blend in. I may have grown up in Utah, but from early childhood on, my brilliant Russian mother saw to it I was exposed to all three languages and spoke all three with no accent. This allowed me a social fluidity that very few enjoyed, as well as the perspective of both an insider and an outsider. In Russia at the time, most gay men fit into one of two categories. My gay friends came from well-connected families who could protect them. When they wanted a night out, they would rent an entire restaurant or club and a private security force for two locations. At the first location, our references were confirmed, we were screened and sometimes searched, once it was determined we were Nosh, one of us, we were then given a paper pass with the address for the real party. The second group consisted of what most Russians considered to be street rats, many of them thugs and runners who worked for the new masters of the Russian economy, the mafia. Russian society didn't allow gays to be visible anywhere else. It was a rough and dangerous world for Kostya and his friends. If they were outed, they could lose their jobs, their livelihood, and in many cases, their homes and family, as Kostya had. Without the protection of a powerful family or circle of friends, this was how and where they were forced to exist. They were on the lowest rung of the social ladder and were considered fully dispensable. Nobody cared what happened to them. Nobody even cared if they went missing. The Soviet government refused to release murder statistics, but foreign journalists estimated the murder rate at that time in Moscow was around 1,000 people a week. Bodies washed up on the banks of the Moscow River every day, and no one even bothered to identify them. They just threw them all in one mass grave and put a date on it. Little did we know then that those new masters of the Russian economy would soon be running the Russian government as well making the lives of Russia's gays even more precarious. At that time, I was spending about two weeks of every month in Moscow. When I could, I would meet Kostya at the potato chip factory where he worked. That is, if I was finished with my work of trying to pair Western investors with Russian media opportunities. Russia was on the precipice of revolution. Of course, I had read about this moment in other societies, and it always sounded kind of cliché. But as I came to learn, this cliché is true. 
On that last visit, the tension in Moscow was so thick, so palpable, so omnipresent, you could feel it, taste it, and see it in every movement and every breath of every citizen. We were all just waiting for that spark that would finally ignite this long overdue revolution. We all knew the moment was coming, and I wanted desperately to be in Moscow when it finally did. But my employers needed me in Chicago. I tried everything to get them to let me stay, to no avail. So instead, on that fateful day, August 23, 1991, I was at an afternoon barbecue in Chicago's Boys Town with some gay friends. They had urged me to join them to get my mind off what was happening in Russia, but even there, I was glued to CNN, hopelessly trying to hear over their bragging about their recent demonstration in Federal Plaza. I had learned to stop talking about my time in Russia with my American friends. Maybe it was too much for them. Understandably, American gays were so absorbed in their own revolution, they didn't have time for what was happening in Russia. After all, it was the height of the AIDS crisis. Reagan and Bush were perpetuating their fantasy of a shining city on a hill, while we were hopelessly trying to get the attention of the American people, with demonstrations and die-ins, inviting the press to witness as we lay down like corpses in front of government buildings, screaming, silence equals death. Two or three funerals a week, for over 15 years, were the constant reminder of how tragically true that chant was. This whole time, our American president, and even my own brother, reveled in telling jokes about how gay men got what they deserved when they died of AIDS. I had a stake in both revolutions, and I was determined to do my part in both. CNN announced the demonstrators were congregating in Dzerzhinsky Square, in front of the KGB building, which also housed the notorious Lubyanka prison. They had brought a crane from a nearby construction site and were encircling the statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the hated henchman of both Lenin and Stalin, obviously planning to bring that statue down. No one understood the symbolism of that night better than I did. Iron Felix, as we not so lovingly referred to him, was responsible for the death of four generations of my grandmother's family. She and only one lost cousin were our family's sole survivors. My babushka lost her parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all her siblings, all her cousins save one, and presumably her one known niece. Her harrowing escape took her down the Amur River, where her ship was boarded by Chinese pirates who killed the ship's first mate and robbed her of her passport and valuables, then through Manchuria, present-day China, on to Korea, and finally to imprisonment in Yokohama, Japan, where she was arrested as an illegal alien. Fortunately, her father had been one of the Tsarist diplomats who had negotiated the end of the Russo-Japanese War. With these connections, she was able to negotiate her release and was finally allowed to board the Empress of Asia, bound for Vancouver, Canada. My family's story is just one of millions, tens of millions. You would be hard-pressed to find a single family anywhere in the Soviet Union who did not fall victim to Dzerzhinsky's murderous mob. Starting with approximately 8 million who died in the 1917 revolution, Millions more who were murdered in the purges before, during, and after that revolution, and of course, 
let's not forget the Holodomor, where in order to quell a Ukrainian uprising, while simultaneously raising capital by selling grain abroad, Lenin and Dzerzhinsky created a fake famine in Ukraine, the breadbasket of the world, and intentionally starved upwards of 5 million people to death. Millions of children were forced to cannibalize their own parents and siblings to stay alive. Then, after the Great Patriotic War, World War II, came yet another round of purges, killing millions more. It was during those purges that my grandmother's siblings and their children were disappeared. Lenin, Stalin, Dzerzhinsky, and the organization Dzerzhinsky founded, the Cheka, later known as the KGB, murdered more people than anyone in the 20th century, even Hitler and his Nazis. Historians, of course, argue how many murders they were responsible for, but estimates number in the tens of millions. Watching CNN that afternoon at my friend's barbecue in Chicago, I suddenly saw Kostya on TV. He was wearing his tank uniform from his recent service in the Soviet army. Kostya scaled the statue of Dzerzhinsky and put a noose around its neck, while thousands of demonstrators in the square and millions of people around the world cheered him on. Once Kostya was safely out of the way, the crane pulled Dzerzhinsky's hated effigy crashing to the ground where it belonged. The joyous roar that ensued was literally heard around the world. I jumped out of my seat in stunned silence. There was no point in telling my American friends what had just happened. Even if they believed me, they wouldn't grasp what I instantly understood. Though he was dead, Dzerzhinsky was about to murder my boyfriend as he had my family, and I had to try to stop it. I excused myself from my friend's party and called the Russian partner of the joint venture I worked for in Moscow. I filled him in on what was happening and asked him if he could contact my American boss and tell him I was urgently needed back in Moscow. Thankfully, he agreed. When I arrived at Chernometeva airport, Moscow was in total chaos. Throngs of Russians waving fists full of dollars and Deutschmarks, bribing guards and airline employees, desperate to get out of Moscow at any cost. The ruble was in freefall. Russian currency was completely worthless. All the exchange shops had been emptied of valuta, foreign currency. The only way to pay for a taxi from the airport was in U.S. dollars or Deutschmarks. I had neither. Suddenly, I felt a firm hand on my shoulder and turned around to find a stereotypically erect, well-mannered German businessman with whom I'd spoken when I changed planes in Frankfurt. He pressed 200 marks in my hand and said, Via Candias, then in German, Good luck, and God willing, young man, the next time I see you will be on German TV holding your boyfriend's hand at a press conference safely in Berlin. Kostya was on the front page of every newspaper and news magazine on earth, breaking news on TV and radio broadcasts all over the world. I had prearranged political asylum for Kostya in Germany. My former boyfriend and then best friend Hans was the son of a member of European Parliament and well-connected in Chancellor Kohl's administration. At that time, Germany was one of a very few countries on earth that would grant someone political asylum because they were gay. With a member of Parliament who also happened to be a prominent German countess as his champion, Kostya would have housing and a stipend in a matter of days. 
I only had to be persuasive enough for Kostya to understand the danger he was in. Of course he'll listen to me, I thought. My work makes me both an insider and an outsider in Russia's strictly censored information bunker. I worked with European, American, and Russian journalists every day. I had to read newspapers from all over the world in multiple languages every day. It was my job. For a short time, a few months earlier, I had even translated for the then Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, Valentin Pavlov. My employer had sponsored his speaking tour of American universities when he was still the Soviet Minister of Finance. I knew firsthand what kind of men these were and what they are capable of. My czarist babushka used to say, if you take the entire ruling class of any society and murder them, you'll be left with a culture that doesn't understand where decency ends and unacceptable behavior begins. The lines of behavior decent human beings simply do not cross mean absolutely nothing to these monsters. But Kostya knows all this, I thought. We've talked about it. Of course he'll listen to me. I was so convinced of the danger he was in, it honestly never crossed my mind that I wouldn't be able to convince Kostya. We met downtown and took the metro back to his apartment. His head was spinning. He had just finished speaking on a national TV show, and he kept interrupting himself with stories of various news networks and foreign journalists who all wanted to interview him. I thought, maybe I should just let him talk. He'll come to the same conclusion on his own, that it was just a matter of time before the media and the new government, whatever that was going to be, would learn Kostya was gay. But he was sure this wasn't a problem. He was the darling of the revolution, fielding calls from news organizations all over the world, and I wanted him to move to Germany? No way. Besides, I hate Germans, he told me. You just don't get it. I'm the hero of the revolution, and it's a new Russia where we're finally safe. It's okay to be gay in the new Russia. I knew with absolute certainty that he was wrong, and he was convinced with equal certainty that he was not. Kostya, I'm begging you, please understand, Russia doesn't have gay heroes. The new Russia is just not that new. I pleaded with him to believe me. Take that interview on Italian TV. I'll meet you in Rome and we'll take the train together back to Munich. They don't check passports on the train, and once you arrive in Germany, everything is arranged. You'll be safe. They'll give you an apartment and an income, but most of all, Kostya, you'll be alive. If you're right, once things calm down in Russia, you can return home. But right now, Kostya, you have to leave. Kostya, please, you don't understand. You're just not safe here. They're going to disappear you. Please, Kostya, you've got to listen to me. We left the metro and started walking towards his apartment when he suddenly turned to me and said, Just shut up. You're being ridiculous. I'll meet you for lunch after my interview tomorrow at our cafe on Gorky Street around 1. I have to go to bed. I was stunned. I had never seen Kostya angry before. He just turned around and walked away. And I never saw him again. I honestly thought we had more time, at least a day or two, but I was wrong. When he didn't show up for lunch, I tried calling him, but the phone in his communal apartment had been disconnected, so I tried his place. 
As I approached the building, I saw one of his neighbors. It was the single mother who lived with her six-year-old daughter in one of the other rooms of Costa's communal apartment. When she saw me, her beautiful round eyes instantly filled with terror. She covered her face and mouth from view with a book she pretended to read, and without slowing down or acknowledging me in any way, she said, Please don't stop. Don't talk to me. Go away, please. My heart skipped a beat. I begged my legs to just keep walking. That phrase, like a dagger, thrust so deep in my soul, placed over and over ad infinitum. He is no more. I will never know the details of what happened to Kostya. If I had followed her to ask, I would have endangered her life and her daughter's even more than I already had. Trying not to cry or react in any way, I pleaded with my legs to just keep walking. I found a bench near the front door of Costa's apartment and sat down. Fighting back tears, I kept checking the time, pretending to wait for Costa. I knew I was being watched, and I had to make it look like she hadn't told me. He no longer exists. I owed her at least that. When someone is disappeared, their existence is completely erased. That person never existed. They never lived in that apartment, served in that tank battalion, or worked at that potato chip factory. All traces of them were evaporated. It's brilliant, really. So much more efficient than the Nazis with their meticulous records. There is no record of their names or their vast numbers or even who was responsible for their murders. Because officially, they never were. What makes this silent conspiracy so effective is terror. If you talk, if you confirm, or even if you dare cry in public, you and those you love could be next. For me, this terror will never end. Could I have said more? Could I have done more? Could I have framed it differently? Was there something I could have said or done to make him understand the danger he was in? Am I the reason his sexuality was so quickly discovered? Am I to blame? If only somehow I could have spared Kostya that terrifyingly lonely moment of betrayal when he realized his beloved Russia doesn't have gay heroes. For the rest of my life, I will hang on to my avoska, my tiny bit of hope. Am I wrong to hope he wasn't murdered? How can I wish a lifetime of tortured existence in the gulags on anyone? Should I pray it was just the bullet to the head and he wasn't tortured, ordered to name names of other sexual deviants by some monster in Lubyanka prison, only meters from where he became so famous?
Further proof of Costia being disappeared came when the images of Costia that had been on the cover of every major news outlet on Earth were scrubbed from the entire internet. Even my friends at Moscow News, a Moscow-based English-language news magazine, told me a strange virus had destroyed all their photos, but only from that night. I was only able to find one single picture. It's now been 30 years, and I still don't know with any certainty what happened to Kostya. I probably never will. Two things, however, I do know. As long as our LGBTQ sisters and brothers anywhere are being arrested, tortured, or murdered, Kostya's story must be told. The world should know those remarkably brave gay activists, human rights activists, and peace demonstrators in Russia, they deserve to know, they need to know, the hero of the Russian Revolution that brought down the Soviet Union was a wonderful, incredibly handsome, brave, out gay man named Kostya. And as for me, I know. It's finally time to cry for Kostya. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. <laughs>